0: Welcome to Direction Correct, People Like's podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Dr. Marcus Corday. I met someone yesterday, a little like an uh, uh, intern or something like that. She was essentially telling me that Houston was better than Dallas. Oh, like, ah. well, how, how wrong she is. The <laughs> Here, we'll, we'll talk some shit about Houston real quick. Let's please uh, do like the only people I know that really like Houston are people from Houston and they will defend it to the freaking death. Yeah. I love, I love Houston. And I I, I can't see it. I can't see it.
1: Well, I'm a, I'm a neutral third party. I've yeah. lived in both. I'm not from either. Dallas is so much better than Houston. And I, you could just end the argument with weather. Like just <laughs> weather-wise. Houston has the worst weather and occasional hurricanes.
0: You know, so like that too. Yeah, and it's not a non-trivial hurricane likelihood either. Yeah. Like it happens like every ten years. Um I just find that Houston has like no soul. Like there's it's like Atlanta. It's just there's nothing yeah. there to really latch on. See, to I
1: actually that. kind of like
0: the soullessness. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that as a perk, not a not a detractor. I will say that people from Houston are like freaking insane in the sense that they will drive an hour and a half to go to dinner. Like Houston's massive and they have no problem, no problem driving forever. So red lights aren't a thing in
1: Houston. I've seen more people just run red lights. Like they're, they're there. They're frustrated. They're like, I'm tired of this red light. I'm just going to go through it. than anywhere I've ever lived. I didn't even know that was a thing until I went to Houston.
0: (laughs) just the optional red light like i i'm yeah i kind of uh admire uh some like modest social de- disobedience I, I do appreciate this
1: well like i even saw that i can't remember where i came across this it's been a few years but i was either reading something or listening to something and they were talking about indicators of social breakdown of society okay. and like one of them one of them was like not stopping at stop signs and, and running red lights, and i was like well he's. Society is breaking down.
0: I, I will say that like going to like Scandinavian countries, it is very freaking orderly. People follow the rules. And mm-hmm. I mean on, on one hand, uh it does create for an orderly society where things can take place uh more easily. But on the other hand, man, that's way less fun. Like if if the little crosswalk guy is still red. But there's no one coming. I don't see a reason to sit there and wait. It just doesn't make sense.
1: Oh this was uh, this featured prominently in that Ted Bundy documentary <laughs> really it was like, yeah, because Ted Bundy, I guess before he killed all those people with bombs, um, he wrote a book and it was like about like I can't remember what it was about, but it, they talk about it in the documentary a little bit. and one of his things is, are you the kind of person when nobody's coming, you'll sit at a red light and wait? That's society's control over you. Society is controlling your mind and all this kind of stuff. Uh,
0: is uh, Ted Kaczynski? Uh, you said a. Bomb. Oh yeah, sorry, not yeah, Ted Kaczynski, not Ted Bundy. Sorry. People here, uh, they will just sit there. It is it, one of the most shocking things of moving to Seattle. It, they'll just sit there at a at the crosswalk and like, especially during COVID, like no one is on the street. No one's on the street, and you're sitting there waiting, and. Just standing there, waiting for a little crosswalk to say you can go. Absolutely, Marcus. Well, hello. So
1: how's is it, it going? Creed or Creday? Oh, any,
2: anything goes. It's I've heard. <laughs> my, I have an older brother who works at a hospital, and his first day of work there, which was like 25 years ago, he he wrote his name on a sheet, um, and but he the D he wrote like it looks like a C L. So apparently to this day over the intercom they call for Dr Crackle um and he responds <laughs> to that <laughs> So Dr. call Crackle. me Dr Crackle so we still call him that
1: <laughs> Dr Crackle and Mr Hyde or yeah. Mr Clyde
0: <laughs> Well I, I will say that you are one of my Twitter heroes I follow you and you look, oh, you, look, you look nothing like your profile photo I must say this <laughs> Yeah
2: the the golden the the, the golden fur has uh, Has worn off a little bit.
1: Uh, I've kind of been off Twitter. Is that your dating profile picture? (laughs) It is. Yeah. Twenty years ago.
2: (laughs) A baby and a golden retriever puppy is the way to go. I think.
1: Yeah. Well, I wish I was on the market. I guess I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) game the system a little bit. Um. Well, Marcus it's really nice to meet you. Um, Nice to meet you guys. I I am not on Twitter, but Scott has talked very highly of you. And I did listen to your podcast, the Department 12 one, and I was just floored by it. I was like, my jaw was on the ground. I was like, okay, we got to talk to this guy. (laughs) I posted about it on LinkedIn. I don't know if you
0: saw that, but I I did. Yeah.
2: I'm not a big LinkedIn person, but I I did see it. Thank you. You're my spirit
0: animal. Yes. Not, not really on LinkedIn. (laughs)
2: As an academic, especially, uh, I'm not sure if that's how useful it is, but I know that it is useful for people in industry.
1: So, for my sake, and I guess for the audience's say, what do you what are you posting about on Twitter? Like, what's all the what's all the the you know praise about? The praise? I haven't posted. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's not <laughs> praise. But what's all the controversy about
2: Marcus? Um, well, I've I haven't been on Twitter much since Elon Musk took it over because I find him so obnoxious that I don't want to reward him. Um, <laughs> even with my, my modest Twitter presence, um, I mainly post about stuff that irritates me about IO psychology, I guess, um, which is a lot. Um, I have the luxury of of not being in an IO department. You know, I'm I'm pretty much the only IO psychologist. It sometimes feels like in the in the entire state of Iowa. Um, so I don't have to answer to angry colleagues down the hallway, so I can, I can rant and rave, and, and that's what I tend to do. Um, and there's lots, of course, to be irritated by, so uh, lots, lots of material. I try to hold back a little bit.
0: I'll, I'll uh, say that the, the one thing that you posted some time ago that really got my attention, like kind of like got like some fervor in me, is that you'd posted that some grad student had shopped around some research idea around the department, and come to find out sometime later Another faculty member had published that research and left their name totally off of it, which should not happen. Should not happen. Clearly, it happens a
2: lot. I was actually speaking to—I was teaching the, the graduate uh, course on research methods uh, just last semester, and I, I heard lots of these stories from, from students, stuff that had happened to them. Some of them had done master's programs before, so it's remarkably common. Uh, and even something that happened when I was in graduate school. Um, so a good friend of mine had that happen to her. So, yeah. And it's bizarre, especially often for tenured faculty members who really don't need one more
0: publication. <laughs> and even if they did, why
2: not put the student first or even have them on the paper? So, yeah, pretty disgusting.
0: Oh, I mean, they talk about, like, turning people off from an academic life. Totally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's it's so hard to come up with a good idea in the first place <laughs> and then to be, like, totally ripped off. It's inexcusable.
2: It certainly is. Yeah, I I I try not to do that. And our department's really good. Is we have the system where if a, if we have a student as a first author, that counts as a first author publication for the faculty. member. Oh. Which well, I a, which I think is nice. I'm is not sure surprised. if that's uh, within the department. I mean, we have no money to reward people with anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Um, but that's that's kind of the system we have here.
0: Well, I mean, that, that's that's directly related to like what you should be doing. You're sort of developing scientist, And if you right. have a student that is, it's it obtained some sort of like high prestigious first authorship, right. you should get credit for that. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Well, Marcus, I'm going to say this because I'm not sure you, you've listened to any of the episodes or you know anything about Scott and I, but both of us are io psychologists, PhDs right. as well. So we are big fans of io psychology but we're also big fans of science in general and calling out good practices and calling out bad practices with balls and strikes. Right. And so I think about, I'm hopeful that this is the kind of conversation that we're going to have where we call out balls and strikes as we see it. But one of the things I heard you mention, and I guess this is kind of along the vein of professors stealing ideas in terms of bad practices, on the Department 12 podcast you mentioned about, this table graph that kind of sent you down a rabbit hole. Right. Of, uh, I don't know. I don't want to, you know, step on your story here, but do you <laughs> mind talking about that a little bit? Because, like, I, again, I was floored by hearing you talk about it.
2: Sure. Um. So, yeah, as I said, the Department 12 podcast, it all started with an email from a friend of mine, um, Peter Harms. I can mention his name. He's at the University of Alabama. And this was, like, 12 years ago, maybe 11 years ago. He sent me this email, and it just said, hey, can you look at this, look at this paper? Um, and he directed me to uh, the correlation table. And it was a paper published in Leadership Quarterly. And one of the correlations in the table was 0.99. And that was what he was concerned about. And you know, I looked at it, and I'm like, yeah, that's, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But you know, that can be a typo. That can be a, an editing, copy editing error. You know, I, I, that would not have gotten me upset. But I took a look at the rest of the paper. And the rest of the paper was this, this train wreck of errors and statistical impossibilities. Basically, used some structural equation modeling. That it's some path analysis. And almost everything that they reported could not be true. Um, and so that you know, raised an eyebrow. So I, being ignorant and naive, I, I emailed the first author. And I said, hi, <laughs> read your paper. Uh, it seems that there, maybe there's some errors in, in this analysis. And I kind of laid them out, um, and he got back to me pretty quickly. And he was like, "No, no, no, there are no errors." I had a, I had a quantitatively savvy person do this analysis, and he mentioned a name. The person wasn't even a co-author on the paper, which is, you know, kind of weird.
1: Um, red flag number two. Red flag yeah, number
2: two. And but at that point, I was like, "Okay, fine. You know, I don't want to get, I don't want to make any trouble." And maybe a week later, I was on the website of the journal, and I came across another article that it was kind of just impressed the, the online first uh, version of the article by the same first author. So I was like, oh, let me, let me take a look at that paper. And basically the same problems, again, just sprang, left off the page, like just stuff that could not be true, statistically impossible. And major errors, these were not like nitpicky things. These were like effect sizes were overstated three or four times, right? Uh, so again, I wrote to this person. I said, hi, it's me again. Um, look, I've just read your new paper, and there seem to be similar errors in this paper. And at this point, he got irritated with me. <laughs> and, he, and he basically told me to stop emailing him um, and didn't, didn't acknowledge any errors. Um, and at that point, I think I reached, reached out to the journal editor, and I said, oh, these are the two papers. Take a look at them. You know, this is what I see. And I kind of forgot about it for about another half a year. And at the time we were doing a meta-analysis on some leadership stuff. And I, I'm reading a, a very highly cited journal of management paper, same first author again. And of course it means my curiosity is now peaked. And this paper is probably the worst of them all. It's like it, the central finding was blatantly impossible. And I knew that I'd been asked not to, to contact this person again, so I, I didn't. But what I did do is basically pull up their entire vita started working my way one paid paper by paper through all their work and i think we ended up looking at oh, i ended up looking at about 30 papers and maybe 20 25 of them had these kind of errors so then i started emailing all of the editors um and like leadership quarterly i think there were six or seven papers that were affected and all the all the top journals basically had this happen and the you know i was obviously upset kind of mad that all this nonsense had never been picked up before. Some of these papers have been cited thousands of times. And it wasn't like I was looking for errors initially, they just kind of left off the page. Um, and some of the editors were very responsive. You know, they basically said, this is a big deal. The Leadership Quarterly, I think, handled it very well. They ended up retracting seven papers. Journal of Organizational Behavior dealt with it very well. Uh, they retracted a paper. Um, but some others really just were not interested in fixing errors. And I accidentally got wow. copied on some of the emails between the editors, was they all reached out to each other and were like, what are we going to do? Um, and some of the editors were like, oh, you know, this is Marcus. He has, a, he has a grudge against this researcher who I'd never met before. I you know, didn't know this person at all. Um, some just decided not to do anything. One person told, one editor told me that they couldn't do anything because they get sued. So it was all of these kind of, kind of responses. So it wasn't just... So initially, I thought, well, we've got one bad apple here. But it turned into, I think, much more. And the most revealing comment I got from the editor of Personnel Psychology at the time, who, who said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he, was, he said, well, you know, the, the authors are, they admit that they've made these mistakes, so they've misreported this. But they say, why are you
1: picking on us? Everybody does this this was the thing that leapt off the page for me that you said and and so this is big red flag number three right um let's call it I don't know talk about this please please dig into it
2: right uh, so I, I was I, I didn't believe him. I was like this can't be these are some bad apples here the field of psychology and, and management the sort of related field is still I think a pretty sound scientific uh, sort of body but I decided to to investigate. So we, we pulled up some, some articles. Um, I think we sort of did an audit of a year or two of some of the top journals in the field JAP, JOB, B and all of those. Um, and it turns out they were right that the kind of <laughs> errors we had spotted in their work kept popping up over and over and over again. Basically, people, and we only looked at sort of structural equation modeling, uh, confirmatory factor analysis results, because that's what kind of the, these errors involved. And so the base rate of what, it, what to me now appears to be basically just made up fit statistics is just frighteningly high. It's not 1%, half a percent. We're talking like 20 to 40%, depending on, oh, on how you look at this. Um, and the analogy I always use with my students is that if I if I invited you out for lunch and I said to you, hey, you know, I'll pay for lunch. at a lovely restaurant. They make wonderful food. There's only a 30% chance that you'll get food poisoning you'll probably decline that invitation, right? Or if I tell you to go, go fly to you know, Los Angeles on a, on a plane and I tell you there's only a 2% chance it will crash and you'll die, you'll probably decline that, that flight as well. And that's how we have to think about our discipline. You know, we, do we, can we recommend our journals anymore to the consumers of the field? And the kind of practitioners like yourselves, right? Um, is, so- is the base rate of nonsense so high that you basically have to say i'm not going to pay attention to anything that's republished externally. so
0: what what was the outcome of this like did anything come about for this specific researcher well they so what happened they were at arizona state university
2: um they on their own had done an investigation already before they found out about my concern so there were already some red flags that they had noticed um and you can find their internal investigation online i think uh Retraction Watch on their website has it somewhere. Um, basically, he was asked to leave, and he's now at a different university. So in terms of consequences, he kept, he kept a job. He makes twice what I make. Um, he got a whole bunch of papers retracted. Maybe 10 or so got retracted. A whole bunch of expressions of concerns were attached to it. And so his reputation, I think, is, has certainly been affected. Um, but in terms of actionable. Things that happen for the field, I don't think, I don't think much happened.
0: Well, I mean, Arizona State is a party school, so I mean, <laughs> these sort of things are going to happen, right. right? No, I, I kid. Obviously, in, in, in any particular analysis, mistakes happen. Like, absolutely, you, you could recode a variable to match another variable, and you get like a 1.0 correlation. Right. That should that should stand out to you. You should be <laughs> paying attention right. to this and think this is absolutely impossible. But over the course of entire Corpus right. of uh research, obviously, it's impossible. But w- boy, this is like so much to unpack. Like this is like a pervasive problem. How how do we fix it? Like what can right. we do moving forward? Um, I think they're, they're, the 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 well, actually. Are... Can,
1: can we pause on this for sure. just a second? Yeah, I want to uh, I want to appreciate the problem a little bit more before we get into solutions because I think you've only talked about one part of the problem you know one of the things we want to discuss to you, with you today is you know for profit journals and the incentives associated with that the open science movement and right. and how that might be able to help with things like this but like is is it just you know people using poor statistical practices or is there more to unpack
2: that's a good question i mean i see it as a as at least at least two probably three separate things there, there's there's certainly a, a hopefully very small subgroup of researchers who are fabricating results. I think that can't be denied. There's no way that all of the, and we've written papers about this, uh, documenting this, and other people have done too. But, right? but that
1: would be, that would fall under like the few bad apples analogy here. Well, few, in,
2: and again, the, the analogy is always the few bad apples spoil the barrel, right? Like the, yeah. it's not just that they're, they stay in the few. They contaminate everything else. Yeah, yeah. Um, But again, the the base rate there, I would say somewhere around twenty to thirty percent who are engaging in some fabrication.
0: And and we see that. Can I
1: extend this analogy here for a second? Because it's not maybe it's not few bad apples spoil the barrel barrel, but maybe it's a few bad apples outcompete the good apples because they can get published in the top tier journals, and the cycle repeats itself. Right. Is yep. that a more apt analogy? I think so. Yes, I think they certainly are
2: outpacing,
1: and it's not just that
2: they're—it's not just that they're fabricating results, but that they're fabricating them for papers that often present the kind of sexy stuff that people talk about at the water cooler, that get the TED Talk invitations, that get you featured on NPR. Um, so it it pulls the entire field in the, in the direction of doing certain types of research as well. Because they're able, they able to, what appears that they're able to generate these amazing results. So that to me is, is one part of it. Another thing that, that bothers me as well is, is some of it is just born of ignorance. I think there's, there's, a, there's a malicious undercurrent and then there's a part that where people just don't know what they're doing. And a good example of that, which is not, well, it's kind of in the I/O field as well, is some of the work that I did on on power posing. You know, Amy Cuddy's famous, you know, stand like Wonder Woman idea. And uh, I was the the first. I was actually reading the paper for an undergraduate class, and uh, because I wanted the students to see a, 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 an easily digestible paper, and then they look at the TED talk and see how it was the impact it had on, on people in general. And I was reading the paper and there were some statistical errors that, that jumped off the page. And I ended up emailing the first author as I have a habit of doing. And she basically, after some quick back and forth, gave me this huge mea culpa about how they basically you know, fabricated the results and everything had been p-hacked and uh, sent me all of their materials, including including some early drafts of the paper, which you know, we can get into as well. But the, the the big problem there that we realized is that there was this whole controversy around power posing, whether it actually works. And dozens of researchers went out to try to replicate the study. Uh, but so we, I think there were like 30 papers that have tried to replicate power posing.
1: Well, can I, can I jump in here? Because- Sure. And this is really important. That's still like one of the top 10 TED Talks out there that I get circulated back to me like once a month. It's number two, life. I
2: believe, Yeah. yeah. So if you look at all of these papers, including the original one, the experimental design is very straightforward. They have a, a treatment group, which is asked to power pose right? you hold this position for, for two minutes. And then the, the control group or the ostensible control group sits in a slouched position for two minutes, right? hunched over, sort of they call, it, they call it a contracted pose. And then they find a difference between the two groups and they say, therefore, power posing is, is good for you. What none of the, neither the original study or any of the, other than maybe two or three, so the vast majority of these these other replication efforts did, was to actually have a control group. None of them have people sitting or standing normally. The few that do, right, the two or three that do, find that power posing does nothing in comparison to the control group. It's slouching that's bad for you. So the advice is basically don't slouch, which I seem to remember my grandmother telling me like four years ago. Yeah, I feel like ago, so grandmotherly <laughs> advice. I mean, just, is yeah, yeah, but that, the whole so all of these PhDs and all these prestigious universities designing studies lacking a basic control group. I'd be mad with my undergraduates if they came to me with a design that lacked a control. How is this happening? And all of these journals psychological science, JAP, they're all publishing this stuff. And I all
0: publish they're all publishing it and it boils down to or funnels down to organizations where you have researchers right. that don't it's hard to get a control group sometimes in uh practical settings, but right. when this is now the accepted method right uh it becomes even more difficult when you have bad practices uh but, but what you're really getting to is this like replication crisis like you have all these authors that are potentially p hacking or just having made up data as it were but we have like so little appetite from these journals to right. have replication studies. Right. Uh, how can we, how, <laughs> h- h- how do we fix this? Like, I don't even, even know I, it's possible.
2: Well, I mean, and cognitive psychology, social psychology have made some really good strides in, in trying to fix that. I mean, they're, they're really, they've convinced journals to, to have calls for replication efforts to accept registered reports right. to, to change their, their evaluation standards and what they look for. IO psychology is still way behind. Um, we've been, a, I'm writing a paper literally right today, um, trying, to, trying to finish it up, um, in which we coded for, what we are looking for is whether there's evidence of replicability and p hacking in moderation results. Right. We are all familiar with those interaction effects that our journals love to, to yeah. publish. Um, and so we coded a couple of things. The first one was: you know, was were, were these supposed interaction effects hypothesized? You know, is there any evidence of pre-registration? We didn't find a single pre-registration out of about 350 articles we coded. And this is like the last two years. This is not 10 years ago. We're still not doing the basics, right? Does anybody actually try to replicate? their moderation effect that they find. And there's like 1% does. Is there open data? No one publishes their data. Again, these are basic practices that are being covered in uh, by other journals and other fields, and we're still not doing it. And then we also looked at the the distribution of p-values, right? So p-values between like, let's say 0.01 and 0.05 should actually be really, really rare, right? They should hardly ever happen. And by looking at the actual distribution of p-values that we see in our field, you can estimate there's there's something called the Z-curve analysis. Allows you to estimate the proportion of those findings that would actually are likely to replicate. And the estimated replication rate of these interaction effects that we publish in all of our journals is about 15%.
0: And what what does this get down to? Like a file drawer problem? Like where people just are not publishing these sort of things? Or just... It's p-hacking. Just p-hacking. The only explanation
2: we can come up with Think of it: if you if you've done a survey within an organization and you've collected data on 15 variables, yeah, right. Think of how many possible interaction effects you could you could run just two-way interactions, hundreds, right? And yeah. so if you're if you're coming up for tenure at some institution and they really want you to have one more JAP or Academy of Management Journal paper, you you get out your laptop and you run all the interactions you can, and then post hoc, you can o- almost always come up with a theory um, that. That seems to predict that.
1: <laughs> and since we're not
2: pre registering anything, you know, you can present it that way.
1: Well, and I, I want to add one thing to this too, because I'm not even sure it's a psychological or management sciences issue, but we sent you over this paper that was just released by Nature uh, that said that found that over 9,000 individuals published 72 or more <laughs> papers a year across right. the board, of scientific disciplines meaning they publish more than one academic paper a week right which anyone who knows about <laughs> publishing in academia is it's, near impossible and so the, the paper was titled uh papers and patents are becoming less disruptive over time which i feel like is the nicest possible way of saying <laughs> our science is going to crap and and so i don't know do you want to talk about that at all marcus
2: you know, I I don't have much of a perspective here other than the fact that I you know through the grapevine I've heard about these uh, I think the term is uh, publication consortiums, right? You know, mm. I'll put you on my papers, you put me on your papers and we'll both double our research output. And of course, if you do that with, you know, 10 of us, then we can all look like superstars without actually having to do much work. So there's mm. there's probably some of that going on. I mean, I do acknowledge that in in some fields where if you're involved in data collection. So I've been recently reading some medical stuff. We've been doing some work on on PTSD in in workplace settings. Um, And a lot of that comes from the medical field. And often it's, you know, author six collected data from 10 patients at their hospital, and therefore they're a a co-author. So I could see, maybe not one every week, but how if that's your role, that you might be on a lot of these papers where you're author number 12 out of 25. (laughs) <laughs> um, I'm not sure if that's what they're referring to. If, um, or if you're working at, at CERN, right, the, the, the Hadron Collider, and you have a paper coming out with 500 co-authors, and you're reporting on you know, minor technical breakthroughs, that you might have a really long list of publications. In psychology it should be a lot harder, though. It depends. It's yeah. probably a little bit disciplined.
0: Well, like, coming, back, coming back to like, what you were talking about earlier, of these like, moderated, mediated models, these are sort of things like, you'll see like, when you walk around STIOP, and from, like, a practitioner's <laughs> point of view, you're like, I don't know what the fuck to do with that. like, <laughs> I, or, or, like, you get these, like, wild samples and this sort of thing. I, I think this is sort of the breakdown of, like, academic literature to what, you know, Cole and I, you know, in practice. Like, how right. can we actually use this information? Uh, and there's just, like, there's there's a gap. And, and I, I think that PSYOP is, in, in particular, is in a real position where they could alienate practitioners from coming to the conferences.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I haven't been to PSYOP in years, basically, but it's gotten too expensive. But I am now a new member of the PSYOP journal publication group that's trying to figure out what what we do with our official journal. Um, Mm
0: -hmm. and,
2: And one idea that I had, which is still being discussed, is to invite practitioners to write about what answers do they need? What methods do, would be helpful to them to help guide what academics perhaps do? So if there's a if there if people like yourselves, if you're in practice and you say, "Man, we could really use help in figuring out how to train people better," and or you know, training in service industry jobs is really tough. Help us figure out how to be a little bit more efficient doing that. That that could maybe reorientate the field towards doing more relevant research and move away from these damn moderated mediation models, you know, where you have your your process app on, on SPSS and you just oh, run yeah. some stupid models and then you have causal arrows and, and you're, you're done. Um, yeah, that's what I would like to see, but, um, we'll see yeah. whether that gets any traction.
0: I, I think that there's a real appetite for practical advice. Like it's, it's one thing to have, like, these are like specialized populations or these sort of things, but to have like, this way, like things like the Hinken and Tracy article are so valuable right. or like how to automate job analysis. That would be right. fantastic. Right. Uh, th- things that like people can use in the moment without having to wait two years right. through the pu- pub- publishing process to actually get it.
2: Yeah. I mean, has there maybe a, a related question to you guys. If you think of IO psychology over the last say 20 years, what's, what's been the, the biggest development for practitioner? Have we done anything new? Has there been something where you go like, ah, oh, this is awesome. We have this new tool that we can use. Or have we been just been treading water at at best? I feel like if I go back to like the 80s and 90s and look at JAP articles, they were often, they seemed more relevant. They seemed more practice oriented, often a lot shorter, less of a theory perspective. So I don't know.
0: Is there something that's useful? I I think we've seen an emergence of uh, engagement, which you you could claim is a a conglomeration of commitment and satisfaction. But it it does feel like it's predictive. Uh, And I think a lot of the breakthroughs are largely coming through technological advances. So uh, uh, advanced computing power can run larger analyses, can run uh, uh, SEM models that are actually accurate, (laughs) perhaps, you know, this sort of thing. Uh, But still, like, there's not a whole lot of know-how on how to apply these sort of things and when to apply them and uh, how to fact check yourself. That's what we're really missing. What about you, Cole? Yeah. I, I, I'm curious what, you, what your perspective on this.
1: Well, I think this, this kind of comes back to your point about samples, Scott, which I, I'm almost at this point now where if somebody is using a sample that's not of organizational workers, yeah. I just don't, I don't think it has the fidelity to prove a, a real finding in a workplace. Like if you're using college sophomores or MBA students, I just don't care, or people on MTurk for that matter. (laughs) I just don't care about your sample. I care about people who are actually, and I've been spoiled by it, leading people analytics functions. I don't even have to take samples anymore. I have 100% of the data on the population, right? right? The mu of the organization. (laughs) And I can run experiments. Like, why would I sacrifice and go to something like MTurk? And so I've extended, and I'll probably mention this a few more times on the podcast, because we've got some other academics coming up. But I- over the last 12 years or so, I've probably spoken to somewhere between 10 and 15 groups of academics and have extended the offer every single time of I lead people analytics. I've got lots and lots of data at my disposal. I also want to embody the scientist practitioner model of partnering with academics to do this type of research. And in that period of time, have never been taken up once to do, to do no, no, what will happen is I will have academics reach out to me and say, I've got this really esoteric thing about, you know, kids' sneakers and the color orange, and I would love to come do some research in your organization about kids' sneakers and the color of orange and and how it's impacting your organization. I said, no, 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 no. That's not what I offer. (laughs) I said, I want to tackle a real business problem. I would love your help. I would like to use the best scientific practices to do that, and I would love to kind of co-publish with you and And at that point, I get a blank stare and no more calls <laughs> back. and And so I, I say that to say <laughs> that i and 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 I, I want to kind of couple this on the end, too, about your point uh, uh, of you know, publishing in academic journals. There was a point in time where practitioners often published in academic journals. But not not only is the motivation terrible nowadays to do it because the cycle time is so long, how are you going to outcompete people who are cheating? <laughs> you know, like, honestly, how are you going to do that? And so I just, I, 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 that's my biggest criticism of what's going on is, is I actually believe in the scientist practitioner model. I really do at my core and I can't get somebody else to hold the other end of the baton.
0: Yeah, there, there's not only the aspect of, like, uh, data privacy within organizations, but I, from what I find, if you put a academic article in front of other practitioners, you know, within the organization that are not necessarily IOs, it doesn't resonate at all. They yeah. want to see NBR, they want to see HBR, they want to see these sort of, like, industry mags that are, like, easily digestible, in which you're talking about p-values and, like, effect sizes, it doesn't resonate.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have very, I mean, again, being stuck in Iowa, I have very little contact with industry. So, you know, I, I, I get to to take pot shots at the field, um, which is amusing at times and frustrating at others. But I, I certainly don't, you know, I, I'm not grounded enough in what, what even what, the, what graduate students want these days. I yeah. don't really have grad students. So,
0: Well, like just speaking, speaking of that, like one of the most uh, uh, enlightening things that you posted some time ago was that you have problems finding grad students. Like they're not applying to you. Right. Is this is this a pervasive issue, like in the organization, uh, in the college, rather, or well, is it like, well, what, what's I think going on? there? I think it's specific to me. So you know, I'm
2: <laughs> I, I I came to Iowa State University because I was a spousal hire. My my wife's a health psychologist. They really wanted her, and they were like, okay, we'll put up with Marcus. Um, and so obviously, <laughs> a, a student who is interested in IO psychology is going to apply to an IO psychology program, right? And so I we don't have a program here. We have me. Um, and students who are interested in social psychology will apply to work with one of the social psychologists here. They won't apply to work with me. So I think in my entire career, I've never had somebody say they want to work with me, um, which, is, which is fine. You know, I, I don't need a half a dozen people wandering around, wandering the halls. I don't have a lab space. You know, those kind of things are just, uh, it's, just a, it's just a different setup. Um,
0: how are you going to steal ideas without these students walking Exactly. Around? I know. I know. I
2: have, I have enough. I have enough. It's did, plausible ideas. deniability, Scott.
0: <laughs> plausible deniability.
2: Ideas are never the problem. I always tell students, you're going to have 100 ideas. The trick is to, to get rid of the 99 junk ones and, and mm. identify the one that's actually good. Students tend to get really attached to that first idea they have and, and don't let go. Most of the ideas I have are crap. But I think I'm pretty good about identifying the ones that are. That are.
1: (laughs) Well, I want to bring it back really quickly because one of our early guests on the podcast was Dr. Chris Castile, and he's been a been a big proponent of the open science movement in the IO psychology field in particular. And I was curious: are you two connected, and have you been collaborating on anything, or and are you a proponent of that movement in our field? Oh, I
2: I don't know him at all. Um, I I haven't connected with him. this, this is, this this is going to sound super depressing, but it's not. I'm, I literally am okay. Um, but I have, in, in all my, how many years this has this been? This is my 18th year post-PhD. I have never had a face-to-face conversation about research with anyone. Anyway. What? Which is never. Just because by nature of the institutions I've been at. Which is, sounds awful, right? Uh, but I have one or two great collaborators who are far away, so we, you know, we chat on the phone. But that, that face-to-face kind of discussion about you know, collaborating on those things just don't, don't happen in my, in my academic career.
1: Well, um, I'm going to facilitate an introduction for you to Chris. <laughs> you don't ever have to meet him in person, I promise. But uh, we, we can make that happen if you're open to it. Uh, definitely.
2: no, But I am a huge proponent of open science practices. Um, I, I beat it into all of our graduate students as much as I possibly can. Um, and it's, a, it's another one of those things that you know I've been trying to get our journals to to move on, even just the, the very basics, pre-registration of hypotheses, open data replication stuff. It's not hard. Um, other journals are doing it. And I, I don't understand the
1: resistance to it. I, I think s- you do. I think it's kind of self-explanatory <laughs> from our well, earlier conversation. Well, but if
2: you're a journal editor, let's say you're taking over a P-syc, right, as an example. Why wouldn't you say, OK, I'm the new editor. Here are our new policies, right? you got to pre-register or anything that's not pre-registered has to be labeled as purely exploratory. You've got to make your data available unless there's some you know, proprietary reasons why you can't. Um, you've, got to pre- you've got to pre-register your analysis, right? So we don't worry about, about use of control variables. It's not that difficult. The only, poss- the only possible worry that I see is that editors are concerned that that's going to lower their impact factor, right? That they're not going to get the sexy
1: articles anymore.
2: um, And that people will, will read them less and cite less. And nobody wants to be the editor. It's kind
1: of like a collective action problem. If everybody does it all at once, then nobody gets the sexy articles and therefore no one is penalized.
2: Exactly. Yeah. That's what we need. We need journal editors to, to to a have some guts to stand, to stand up for the things. And there have been some cases of people doing that. I mean, I'm, I, I'm friends a little bit with John Antonakis, who was in charge of leadership quarterly for a while. And I think he did a lot to sort of increase the rigor of that. His big thing is, you know, observational studies, people making causal claims based on that. Um, so he kind of cut that out almost completely at the journal, I think.
1: Um, well, hasn't their impact factor gone through the roof because they, as a consequence? Well, it's
2: hard to, yes, it has. Uh, but most journals impact factor has gone through the roof because who's the Who's the body that does the calculation of impact factors? I don't
1: know. The you web... would know more than we would. Yeah,
2: no, it's some some group. Basically, they changed their formula. And so a lot of journals saw this one-time big bump up, and it's hard to, you know, you've got to kind of almost look at the rank order. Um, but Leadership yeah. Portally has certainly not suffered. They, they're they a better journal than they were five years
1: ago. Well, well, now we're officially going into the part where we're losing all of the audience because we're talking <laughs> so about things like impact could... factors. I'm wondering, Marcus, do you want to join Scott and I in the nerdery? In the nerdery? Not- what is that? <laughs> well, this was a test to see if you actually listened to the podcast before. Clearly, you have not. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to parts of it. Okay. Well, one of the things that we do is we, we go into an area called the nerdery where we discuss a few topics on you know scientific things, but it's more of a free-for-all discussion. Sure. And so uh it's yeah. usually a lot of fun. I, I don't know, Scott, what's our first topic to talk about?
0: Well, I mean, before we get into it, like what are y'all's favorite citations? Do you have some like go-to citations that uh, <laughs> you just almost include in every paper? Oh my goodness. Um
2: you know, I do a lot of a fair amount of meta-analyses, so I mean the the Hunter and Schmidt stuff is going to come up a lot.
1: Yeah. Um yeah. I was going to say that.
2: <laughs> yeah. I have a I have an old favorite paper from like 1959. I think it's McKinnon is the art. It's a first, it's a JAP article, single author. Um, and the point of it is is that two variables can be like almost perfectly correlated with each other, like 0.99, coming back to our earlier point. Right. And yet still have completely different relationships with the third.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, so the, core, the that idea was don't,
2: don't, just, don't just combine variables because they exhibit some high level of
1: linearity. I would this I would th- say probably Hackman and Oldman, Oldham's uh, uh, job characteristics model. Huge fan. Yeah. Um and I want to give credit to Daniel Pink as turning me on to that. He's written a, a few famous books on the on the topic. <laughs> well, Scott, Scott, what's yours?
0: Uh, I go Schmidt and Hunter. However, we're learning recently that, that the results may be questionable. Uh, I like Bosco's effect size distribution article. Uh a Guinness and O'Boyle. I uh-huh. I do a lot oh, of yeah, performance yeah, sort yeah. of stuff. Big fan. That- that's yep. a great one. And, uh, I and that some...
1: came since uh, the year 2000 as well. I would say that had a big impact on the field to your earlier
0: question, Marcus. Right. And it's, it's funny you say that because uh, the first topic here is this age and impact of innovation. It's a Matt Clancy article. Do you know Matt Clancy, Marcus? I, I
2: heard the name, but I don't know him, no.
0: He, he's at Iowa State. He's an assistant professor, which uh, you can speak to this, but like Iowa State is like, secretly one of the most beautiful campuses on in america oh my right. God, it's gorgeous yeah absolutely gorgeous i went there for a football game years ago but essentially this is matt clancy's substack where he publishes uh, everything under the sun or like what's new under the sun it's like once a month it's great great read uh but he talks about uh people of uh the older you get in your tenure you tend to rely on a narrow, narrow set of concepts, and you start using older and older citations. Whereas <laughs> newer tenured uh, researchers tend to use a broader array of concepts and use newer citations. And like c- c- certain things are more discoverable over time, such as experimental findings, where like conceptual findings, your things where like is just like theoretical perspectives. They tend to be uh, found when people are younger in age. Right. It's just absolutely fascinating. And less disruptive work happens over time. So you right. if you're gonna make an impact is typically when you're fresh out of school. Right.
2: Yeah. So you get also get I think you get embedded in your social network and you get to a point where you don't want to offend any of your friends by telling
1: <laughs> that their work is crap. <laughs> well, and, and you kind of just get I mean, as a human, you get into a groove, right? And I, when you're in a groove, you're not you know, I would use kind of the metaphor of how often do you take a new drive on the way to work or right. on the way to this, yeah. the grocery store? You find the quickest way there, and then you just keep going that way right. for the rest of you know your life or as, however long you live there. And so in some ways, you almost have to mix things up in your life if you're going to start doing new and novel concepts, right. which is happening all the time when you're making big life decisions younger in your career. Right.
0: Yeah. And this That's- gets so...
1: Oh, please, please, Marcus, No, no I, was just, so
2: I said that the, um, I have the attention span of a chipmunk. So I, <laughs> I, I tend to um, sort of rotate through research topics of interest. Um, and so I've, I've, I think I've been able to avoid that thus far. But who knows what's going to happen in the second half of my career. <laughs> well,
0: what, what you all mentioned earlier uh, around the testing ideas are like uh, you have a narrowing social circle. You can no longer uh, like call out each other's bullshit on your different ideas as well. Right. Or, or, like, we, we've already had this talk 14 times. There's no need for me to right. edit your paper <laughs> anymore if you have right. a set of continuous people.
2: Yeah. I got it. Yeah. There was a, an assistant professor when I was in graduate school. Um, and he said to us, and he was being serious, he said, if you do anything other than a two by two ANOVA, you're doing something wrong. That was his you know, methodological. Um, tool and that's all he did, and that's what he's. I looked at his Google Scholar profile the other day. That's all he's continued to do, and that's. I mean, it's a just it's sad and boring, but you know, it seems to work for some. Well,
1: someone. hold on, hold on, here here for just a second. <laughs> I want to defend the defenseless two by two ANOVA. Well, there's nothing because... wrong with it, but if that's <laughs> all you're doing, well, it's not only nothing wrong with it. I would say, especially, and this is not to necessarily academic publishing, but in the practitioner's toolkit. Oh my gosh, you can get so far in your career with just a two by two and over, or even, and I will say it in hushed tones, a t test.
0: Oh, oh I love t tests. Yeah. <clears throat> I'll, know, I'll go, that... I'll go a step further. Like, if it's not going to pass a chi square, it's not going to pass a fancy <laughs> analysis either. Right. I mean, so we get back to replication and like actual, uh, legit findings. Some of these basic tools are super powerful.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh. I, I think I mentioned this on the episode with Alec Levinson, but, I remember him saying at a speaking engagement, again, probably over 10 years ago, he had a professor in graduate school who was pretty prominent. And they said, if you can't replicate your fancy finding with a table of averages, it's probably not real. Right. And I have subscribed <laughs> to that
2: notion ever since. Absolutely. No, I'm a big fan of, of simple. And I, you know, I, I, my, my wish list for IO psychology is fairly long, but near the top of that is to get back to the basics. You know, even just, Things like measurement, you know, uh, the things that we claim to be able to measure. And often if you trade, I have my graduate students do this in class, you know, take their favorite construct, see how, you know, get their favorite measurement and trace it back to the origin. Look at the original scale development paper. And it's often just some guy sitting in an armchair with a bottle of red wine coming up with some items. And that's, you know, that's (laughs) not how we should be doing things. As fun as that can be. Um, so those kind of basic research questions. Before we ever get to the late profile analysis and the hierarchical linear models, we need to figure out the the, the basic stuff first.
0: Absolutely, and it is amazing how often those like first few weeks of grad school and those research methods class come right. up. I'm I'm talking like random sampling, oh, right. random assignment, <laughs> c- c- control sample, Both, control right. <laughs> sample. You know these sort of things that apparently are not happening that much.
1: Yeah. Well, I want to kind of throw a curveball here for our next nerdery topic, because um, it was something that Scott sent to me earlier this week, and I was really intrigued by it just because it's getting so much traction right now. Which is the four-day work week instead of the five-day <laughs> work week. What What are your guys' thoughts on? I like. I, I won't give too much about what I'm thinking on it yet until I want to hear from you guys first. But what are your guys' thoughts on the four-day work week? And is it all that it's, you know, meant to be? Oh,
2: not sure if I have any too coherent thoughts here. Just as long as teachers still stay in school and teach my kids on that fifth day. Um, <laughs> you need that day off? I, hope I need that day off. Um, you know, I personally, I feel like I need the five days because there's, there's, Certain types of work that I can only do for a couple of hours a day, like writing, after a while, my writing quality just goes down. And so I need, I need some chunks every day and if I'm going to get that done. So taking off an entire day, I think that would, that would probably not be good for me. In general, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to people having more time off, but uh, I'm, I'm going to be a data-driven person and see. I want to see the data on what the effect is on all the kind of outcomes we care about.
0: Supposedly, I sent this to Cole, and supposedly it's a Business Insider uh, article mm-hmm. that this is from. Like that's that that could be uh, uh, false sort of claim here. It had a gazillion likes; people were all over this. I'll be right. And it, typically, when you talk about like a four-day work week, they're talking about uh, extending that to a four, a ten, ten-hour days. So you have forty-hour right. days. The article talked about a thirty-two-hour work week. So essentially, just remove an entire day from the entire system. Uh, I, I tend to work almost every day at least some some part so like I don't really have a problem working five days myself uh, I, I think it's like another tool in the tool bag in the sense of like we haven't really explored it that much uh, supposedly this article had uh, some research behind it don't know how quality of research it was this sort of thing but there's there's ramifications from the business perspective like if you're right. reducing your output by 20% do you pay the workers 20% less and what does that mean for everybody all these sort of things would be you know uh, follow ups to sort yeah. of thing well, and this
1: this may be a straw man I'm arguing against but usually when I hear people talk about that they say you can be equally productive i.e. your output stays the same but you just work less hours and because you're working less hours you're more productive okay. Which I I think falls squarely in the camp of all of those folks, like we've talked about, remote work versus in person. Of they say, "I'm more productive when I work from home." And it's like, well, absolutely, but that's not all of your job, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, absolutely. You know, like talking to other human. You know, obviously, if you never talk to another human being again, much like it sounds like Marcus does, you know, <laughs> you, you, you're probably going to be incredibly productive on task-oriented behaviors. But as we all know, there's people-oriented behaviors as well. And this thing called collaboration that happens every once in a while. <laughs> and so I, I think about that as like, I imagine it's like, yeah, it, for, it, it's like a, a near-term versus long-term problem. I imagine if you went to a four-day work week for one week, absolutely. That one week would probably be pretty productive and you would you know manage your time effectively. But as time <laughs> went along, you would go back to basically yeah. your habits of a five-day work week, just over four days. And your output would diminish over time, which would bring you to kind of Scott's point of, do you pay people 20% less and all of those type of things. And so I just don't think these, these talking points really reflect the magnitude of making such a decision. And here's another thing that hasn't really been considered is I believe if you get below something like 35 hours, I'm probably wrong on this. This is directionally correct. Um, but if you get below 35 hours, you're a part-time employee. And so a lot of people yeah. might even lose their benefits coverage and things like that if you move to 32 hours a week. And so I don't think people are considering the ramifications right. of a lot of this stuff if they did move to a four-day work week. And or it's
2: probably also occupationally quite specific. I don't, I don't want a surgeon who's you know, at the end of his 15 hour <laughs> shift or, or a pilot you know, who's been yes. flying for 20 hours. So for certain jobs, it might be much more manageable than others. Um, I sometimes joke um, that as an academic, if I stopped doing my job other than teaching at a minimal level, it would probably take my employer three to four years to figure that out. <laughs> Before somebody would say, hey, Marcus, what's going on? Right? You're not, you haven't published. This is a pipeline, as you mentioned earlier, is so long. Um, student evaluations of teaching, everybody kind of just ignores those anyway. So how would anybody know if I stopped doing my job? In yes. most occupations that's a little bit different, but uh academia is a weird beast.
0: That's that's a great point. It's a criterion problem. You don't yep. really have clear measures of performance in a right. lot of like these sort of knowledge jobs. Uh, yep. but if if I'm given a day off, make it Wednesday. Yeah. I need the I need
1: the two-day two weeks, man. Oh, I love this. Yes. I could I could definitely get on board with that, Scott. I did want to bring up just a quick tangent on this point for a second about People not knowing if you're working or not and getting paid. <laughs> I remember reading this article a few years ago about a person who I guess they were going through like a reorganization and they were supposed to move to a new boss from an old boss, but they just quit coming into work and <laughs> they got paid for like seven years because the old boss thought they were with the new boss and That's, the new boss oh, thought that they never it. moved. Nice. And so they just kept receiving a paycheck. But the tangent I want to bring up is I, I heard I'm in the Slack channel. I heard somebody ask this question the other day, and I thought it was really interesting, which is, and it has come up a lot during the pandemic because you know, people are working remotely. They were asking, how would you know, like what indicators would you be able to find out if somebody's holding two remote jobs at once and getting two paychecks without, you know, doing all of the work associated? How how would you answer that? That's I feel like it's a really good question.
0: Well, I I work at a tech company, and it's it's probably apocryphal, but I've heard of these sort of things happening where someone will work at another tech company as well. And I mean, we're getting to the point where there's a lot of automation right. uh, tools out there where you could probably, you know, automate some task and appear yeah, but to so be how online. So how would
1: they find out? Like, how would they know if you, if they worked at two tech companies? You
0: probably wouldn't. You, yeah.
2: If you're It'd be smart about difficult. it, yeah. When I was in grad school, there was a professor two doors down from me who, there was. I was sitting in my office and there was suddenly a massive commotion in the hallway. And it turns out that the, the chair of the department had found out that this professor at the University of Illinois um, at Urbana-Champaign also was holding a position, a fully paid position at NYU in New York. And he was flying back and forth and organizing his teaching so that he could hold both <laughs> positions at once. And he was literally thrown out of the building when, when the chair found out. Now, I think it was at some conference that he was at where he kind of gave, gave it away because his slide presentation showed that he <laughs> said NYU. And somebody saw it and was like, aren't you at, at Illinois? Um, so but He's that's like, mean, yes,
0: yes, I am at <laughs>
2: Illinois.
0: Is like dating what, two what girls? A typo. <laughs> And like, is there is there anything wrong with that? Like, uh, yeah, you're you're uh being paid by two organizations, but does does it matter? I mean, like, right. we're we're seeing a rising gig economy where people hold multiple jobs. Well, presumably they're
1: saying they're working and they're not. I mean that that I think is the thing that's wrong with it. Like they're
0: being paid for a certain level of work and they're not engaging in it one way or another. Well, once again, like you come back to productivity measures uh right. yeah. if you're meeting some sort of standard then right hey do your do your thing man because people golf on the weekends they have all sorts of outside of activities why not have um, another job
1: yeah <laughs> let's start let's start a trend scott let's do it right here no, i'm Come busy on. i'm good well let, let's switch gears here for a second so uh, you guys are both on twitter or at least you were on Twitter. Um, do you feel smart when you retweet something? <laughs> You're I good with this know. one. I then. saw
2: that I saw that what you had sent. And I can see that happening. I I, I don't I never really feel well, hold smart. hold on, hold on. So... We gotta
1: explain this. You can't just pivot to what's <laughs> going on so it, it turns out that people who retweet something like a finding, uh like a scientific finding on Twitter. They feel more, they feel smarter and more knowledgeable after having retweeted it, even if they haven't read it. So I, I don't know. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. I
2: like to think that I always read it, so I can't use my personal experience. So, do I buy the finding, or do I personally feel smarter?
1: I I was kind of going with the latter, but um, <laughs> not. But I mean, the, talk about either. This is the nerdery.
2: Oh. I forgot to remember what I, what I last retweeted an article. <laughs> See, I guess in psychology, most of this stuff is such crap that I try not to retweet it. Um, well,
0: there's the the, the the findings of this are, like, absolutely fascinating. So, like, if you don't read and you don't share, right. from pre, pre to post, you actually have less subjective knowledge. But no reading <laughs> plus sharing, you right. feel smarter. If you read it and you don't share it, you feel smarter. If you read it and you share it, you feel smarter. So eh, eh, just go ahead and just uh, share that
2: information. Yeah. No individual differences whatsoever? Is this just a universal effect?
0: Oh, I don't know. I didn't actually read this article (laughs) in in the spirit of sharing without reading. But gosh,
1: but golly, he feels smarter now,
0: which actually this brings to the
1: point. We didn't actually introduce you, Marcus. I totally forgot you. I am you. so
2: famous that you don't need to introduce me.
1: So, so I did want to do a quick introduction here for the people who made it this far in the podcast. But Marcus Creed, you were born in Germany, grew up in South Africa, received your bachelor's and master's from the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And then we're awarded your PhD in Iowa psychology from the University of Illinois. And you've taught at a few universities, but you're currently at Iowa State. And the reason why I brought this up is because your primary research focus is on individual differences. So I'm not surprised (laughs) to hear you ask the question, are there individual differences, differences. which never even crossed my mind. As
2: an IO psychologist, it never crossed your mind?
1: <laughs> well, this is the nerdery. This, isn't <laughs> this is an academic
2: nerdery. debate. This, this is, a, free this, for is all. a battle I wage every day as somebody who's ostensibly in a social psychology area. I keep There's always the question. Marcus raises his hand in seminar and says, are there individual differences? Because the <laughs> students all talk about situational characteristics and influences. So yeah. um, it's, a, it's a battle. But
1: uh, it's the gift nice. The that keeps on giving.
2: Yeah, the gift that keeps on giving. It's an, it's an easy, low-hanging fruit for me to pick. Um, but yeah, an interesting life so far.
1: Absolutely. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation, Marcus. I I'm curious to see if anything comes of it. Like if, if we fast forward in time two years from now or five years from now, will we be able to look back at this moment and feel proud (laughs) of the changes that we made or is it going to be the same or is it even potentially going to be worse, you know, five years from now? because all of the good academics have been competed out of journals and we're just publishing pure garbage at that point.
2: I'm hopeful, which, which is weird. My students always think I'm the ultimate Donna as I point out all the, the problems. <laughs> um, I do feel that there are some good people in the sort of leadership ranks of PsyOP and some of the journals who are who value this. Uh, Tara Behrendt is our new PsyOP president. I'm not sure if this is her year or next year, and she's really, emphasizes this kind of stuff um so i'm i'm hopeful that there's a new generation coming through the 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 alternative side of that is that i think we've been as a field hijacked a little bit by business schools um who are offering so much more money that a lot of our top uh, ostensibly top scholars most productive scholars are being they're moving to the business schools and then they have to meet the the performance requirements that they dictate, which is often, you've got to publish in this very narrow subset of journals. Um, And a lot of those journals still, I think, are not on the open science bandwagon. So it's two competing forces, and we'll see who wins out.
1: Well, that's really interesting. I always assumed that it was just IOs that were jealous of business school people making more money. And that's why it keeps getting brought up. But I guess there are negative implications if if there is such range restriction and into the type of journals that are being put forward
2: well it's a it's it's that but it's also a training issue I think for us in the long term because if if it is the case and we could argue about that but if it is the case that the best academic IO psychologists are being recruited into business schools where they typically train very few phd students right what does our pipeline look like and I, I, i'm not i think there are some very strong iO psychology programs who are training phd students but there is this kind of funneling effect that if you're you're publishing really good work in the top journals eventually the business schools will come calling and saying hey we can double your salary Mm -hmm. so uh what again 10 20 years time we might know more about that um but it is i think it is a challenge
1: i don't think we have the problem of too few IO psychologists yet perhaps we have the other problem but who knows maybe that will be a problem in the future i don't know do you have any scott thoughts about that scott
0: uh not necessarily that but uh marcus I, i've been keeping up with your uh, cucumber saga have you were you able to give give those away you know
2: we, we 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 got we gave all of our neighbors were inundated with cucumbers um <laughs> and eventually we just killed the plants we were like we're done <laughs> every time we went out it had Growing more and more, and they were, my kids kept coming back with more and more cucumbers. So, only one cucumber plant per garden is a very important life principle. That's all you Wait, what?
1: So, what what happened here? What does this cucumber We had, every, we had
2: our, we, for the first time ever, we planted a bunch of cucumber plants, and it turns out that you only need one because they're so productive. At least in Iowa, we have great soil here, and uh, this was a good year for growing cucumbers. But please don't ever. I don't I never want to see a cucumber again.
0: Don't do it. Yeah, don't
2: do it. Did you, Unless you have
1: pickling a- to turn them into pickles?
2: We, we had an entire fridge full of pickles. <laughs> <and it's>...
1: <laughs> <laughs> never want to have a pickle again either. Never, well, never. Marcus, this has been great having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. A- any final words, Scott, before we give the final
0: to Marcus? Marcus, I, I love uh, seeing you online, and it- it's a pleasure to meet you in person. I uh, look forward to talking to you soon.
2: Yeah, pleasure to meet you guys too. And thanks for having me on.
1: Absolutely. Well, you've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott and Dr. Marcus Creed. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye.
0: As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening
1: to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott, powered by Orgnostics.